From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut. Today, another surprise in the spiraling costs to build the Atlanta Police Training Center. Plus, we'll look at some of the highlights from the AJC's new poll. Among them, Georgians' feelings about the fairness of state elections. I'm Patricia Murphy. Cobb County Democrat Jerrica Richardson has announced she'll continue to run for the newly redrawn 6th congressional seat, a race that pits her against Congresswoman Lucy McBath. Richardson told us this a few weeks ago. It is never my intent to displace a sitting incumbent that's a part of the Democratic Party. That is just not something that I jumped into this race for. This is Greg Bluestein. Plus, Patricia and I are getting set to head to New Hampshire to cover the first primary election of 2024. It's a crucial contest for Nikki Haley, who hopes to defeat Donald Trump in the Granite State. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Patricia, we haven't got a chance to talk to you since you and Tia did such a terrific job reporting from Iowa. You were up there in sub-zero temperatures. You come back to Atlanta and it's freezing and you're heading to New Hampshire soon where it's again going to be very cold and possibly very snowy. Are you beginning to adjust to cold weather? (laughs) Oh, I don't mind cold weather. When I landed in Atlanta, it was um, 35 degrees. That's not true. It was a little bit colder now. It was about 30 degrees. And um, someone was saying, oh, gosh, it's so cold. I'm like, it was literally 45 degrees colder in (laughs) Iowa. Like. Just wrap your head around that. Um, I found it just like one long science experiment to be out there to find out what actually freezes when it's that cold. And the answer is everything, everything. freezes. Greg, you're a you're a southern uh, uh, guy too. Like Patricia, you grew up down here. Are you ready for the possibility of really cold weather when you head to New Hampshire? You know, I think it's colder here right now. I just looked at the weather. I think it's colder here right now than it is in New Hampshire, as hard as that is to believe. It's not going to rain. It doesn't look like it's going to rain until later on next week. But it'll be cold. It'll be Highs of 35 on Monday, highs of 36 oh, on Tuesday. But, that's nothing. Yeah, I know. I know. Do you veterans? <laughs> I haven't, I haven't bought the uh, the full on Patricia like like Eskimo parka yet. <laughs> With the, well, you need to. I, I don't know need. what you're waiting for. I'll, I'll just wear a t-shirt and shorts and see how it goes. So let's do a little promotion before we get to the news. Uh, Greg, when do you head up there? I head up Saturday. And Patricia. I'm Sunday. Okay. Well, we'll be looking forward to seeing your reports uh, in the in the AJC and also hearing from you on uh, Politically Georgia. Um, I'm excited for you. It's a great uh, primary, I think, to cover. Uh, let's get down to some uh, news that's uh, broken uh, in the last day about the Atlanta Police Training Center. Uh, Greg, among other things, um, we heard from uh, the city that suddenly the costs for the training center have escalated to much more than we had previously thought they were going to be. It's now up to almost $109, $110 million, $19 million over a kind of a shocking number that we got months ago when uh, it turned out the city was paying for uh, more costs than we expected. Um, 
what's going on here? Yeah, and, and, and early on, we, we had heard the price tag was $30 million, and so it jumped to $90 million after we, we got more details about the exact cost of it. But since then, it's jumped by another nearly $20 million because of increased security. Uh, and we all we, we all covering some of the, those issues with security. Also, uh, the debt service, litigation, a spike in insurance rates, all that has, has, has led to more public financing. Um, Patricia, the we are told that none of this new money, the $19 million, will be paid by Atlanta taxpayers. Instead, it will be paid uh, by the police foundation and police foundation donors. But that doesn't mean that it's kind of not stunning to hear how much this is ending up costing uh, to build. Well, yeah, I agree. I do think, though, it's important to split off those litigation costs and the costs of um, increased security, because this is starting to sort of become a self-fulfilling prophecy of people um, being really, uh, some people being significantly opposed to the center in some cases because of the cost and for other reasons, but the more they oppose it and the ways they oppose it means that it becomes more expensive just to keep it safe for the construction workers. Um, so it's, uh, I think the, the nature of the costs are important to, to split out. Um, but I don't think the fact that it's just paid for by the police foundation is going to make people feel just fine about it. I think that I, I actually hear from people concerned that there is private financing for this. They want to know who's paying for it, why are they paying for it. Um, they want to know the motivations behind that and sort of the public policy question of whether there should be private donors for a um, public effort to train police. It's a question that is coming up to me more and more. It's a deeper conversation, but I do think the increasing costs are just one more thing that makes this harder to get across the finish line. Uh, there's another interesting uh, story. By the way, it's, I think it's really important you point out the costs that are going to security. So thank you for that. There's another interesting story, Patricia, that was uh, in the AJC this morning. Um, the Atlanta Police Department is paying for billboards in major cities around the country in that are designed to... Um, give rewards to people who will um, give information on uh, out-of-towners who have come to Atlanta with violent intent uh, in terms of their protests of the police center. They're offering rewards, Crime Stoppers of Greater Atlanta, offering rewards of up to $200,000. Patricia, this is an interesting development. Um, We already know about 60-some uh, people who have been arrested, charged with essentially uh, conspiracy to commit terrorist activities, um, and now they're out with a billboard campaign looking for more. Yeah, you know, it's a very strange combination of the FBI's most wanted list and then the typical billboards that we see recruiting police officers. It seems like a very unusual approach to be so specifically targeted, not on necessarily the the, the exact person that they're looking for, but just the nature of the crime that they're sort of casting a wide net to gather information and suspects. It's it's very unusual. I guess they felt like they need to get creative, um, but it is, I think, going to be quite controversial um, based on the types of charges that these people are already facing, including racketeering charges for mm-hmm. dozens of people mm-hmm. who have played different kinds of roles in this 
in this entire protest. Authorities, Bill, say that there have been more than 80 criminal instances related to the training center's construction, uh, more than 173 arrests overall. Mm-hmm. That includes uh, alleged acts of 23 different acts of arson. There's one apparently this earlier this week. Um, but look, you know, the, the narrative has also been that a lot of these, these activists have been out of state. And so this kind of plays into that, that there's uh, out-of-towners who are coming in. But we also know, obviously, there's a number of people here in Atlanta, here in Georgia, who fiercely oppose this as well and who are not taking up arms and not mm-hmm. sabotaging the equipment, who have who've been using legitimate protest to push back against this construction. Um, I think we should also point out that this national billboard campaign um, basically coincides with, it's surprising to me, it's already been one year Greg, this is the one-year anniversary of the shooting death of uh, Manuel Tortuguita Tehran. They were killed in what is still under some scrutiny, Mm -hmm. uh, a shooting in which he had a gun, in which uh, law enforcement says he fired the gun at them and was in turn shot and killed. Yeah, there's still a lot of questions, still the questions about the body cam footage, who fired the gun? There's been different back and forth. There's still court cases pending. Um, uh, you know, a, a diary has been subject to a lot of scrutiny. So still a lot of unanswered questions that we're going to hear more about in litigation and, of course, out there in protest and demonstrations from the people who oppose the center being built. Well, Patricia, in terms of that, you have to wonder if this one-year anniversary um, and the news that there's this national billboard campaign to identify even more people who may have been involved in violent actions um, is going to gin up the protesters who usually need very little reason for getting back active in terms of protesting against the site. Well, I'm certain it will increase um, increase opposition. It'll certainly be another uh, data point that uh, some of the people opposed to this will say this is another example of over-policing, aggressive policing. Um, I do want to say, though, I hear from proponents of this center, the training center, who say there are violent elements to this. And there are. I, the mm-hmm. arson that's happening torching uh, construction equipment in Gwinnett County, um, millions of dollars worth of equipment, that business uh, has to find a way to pay for that. Um, It's not necessarily covered immediately in a way that they can get back to operations. And they simply had a contract to do the construction. Um, Lots of threats against members of the city council, threats against people involved in the construction. And the people who, the peaceful protesters who are opposed to this, the proponents of the center would like to hear them speak out more Mm -hmm. against the violence and say, this is not us. This is not appropriate. This is not the kind of protest that we want to encourage or be associated with. And that is a piece that um, you don't hear a lot of. And there, I, there are, there seem to be two different kinds of protesters here. This very aggressive um, anonymous uh, effort to do really serious, significant violent acts. And then those who have, uh, who are more out there, uh, and certainly fully legitimate in their concerns about the center. It's two different groups, but it can start to feel like the same group in some cases, because we don't hear condemnation of those violent acts. I think that's so important. Um, we'll move on in a second, but Greg, Patricia makes an awfully good point. There are peaceful protesters. There are who Uh, oppose the center because of environmental reasons, that sort of thing. But they have not been uh, outspoken in any 
um, meaningful way about the violence that's been done in the name of opposing the center. Yeah, it's, uh, some have, um, but but yeah, some but not much. But but some <laughs> haven't, and and that is you're right because it make, becomes all too easy for supporters of this project just to paint all the opponents as violent, right? Mm-hmm. And we've seen that in some cases. Um, and it, it really it really makes it harder for those opponents to pr- promote their message when some of their uh, some other like-minded people are setting fire to construction equipment mm-hmm. are, are 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 using violence to, as a means to try to prevent this project from being Okay. Done. Um thank you for that conversation. Um let's move on. Uh this week Greg we know that the Atlanta Journal-Constitution released a brand new poll. Over a thousand registered voters uh, in Georgia were asked to respond to the questions. We've talked about the fact that the poll uh, earlier this week showed that Donald Trump is leading uh, at this moment in the snapshot picture of Georgia voters by something like eight points. Mm-hmm. We talked about the fact that um, voters do in fact favor by a majority uh, the full expansion of Medicaid. So those are a couple of really interesting yeah. findings that we've discussed on the show. <clears throat> Mark Nisi this morning has a piece which I was one of the first things that struck me as being interesting, which is that despite all of the Trumpian uh, insistence that the, that uh, the elections here are rigged, that the election machinery needs to uh, be updated, maybe replaced, that Brad Raffensperger is not handling elections well. A majority of Georgians told our pollsters that, in fact, they think elections here in 2024 will be handled fairly. Yeah, um, and and another 55% of voters oppose the push for a paper ballot overhaul. That's including a majority of Democrats and independents. You're still seeing a significant number of Republicans mm-hmm. who are saying they're not confident about the uh, that the, the 2024 vote will be conducted fairly and accurately. That's 53 percent. And also, Bill, uh, many independents, 42 percent of independent voters who in Georgia tend to vote Republicans, but during the Trump era have shifted more towards up in the air. Um, a lot of them say they don't they're not confident about the election results. So I think. There, it's a dose of good news and bad news yeah. for those who are, are, are fighting for uh, confidence in the election system. Patricia, your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I saw the headline that a majority of voters are, are believe that this is going to be a secure election. Um, but again, when you dig into those numbers, 57% does not knock my socks off. That is, And those are p- including people who are somewhat confident there are only there are fewer than 30 percent who are very confident in the election systems um despite no actual evidence that there's anything wrong with those and the fact that after years of debate lawmakers spent more than a hundred million dollars to upgrade these voting machines because there was lots of evidence that the ones before them were not secure um so to me this is a bit of a red flag i mean i think it's a majority supporting it is important, but that also means a large majority of Republicans in particular don't trust these machines. And that has everything to do with the fact that President Trump is telling them that they were not trustworthy the last time around. And despite all of local Republicans' efforts to assure them that they are safe and secure, including the governor and the secretary of state, um, those assurances have not landed with Republican voters. And I think that's a major, major problem 
uh, assuming that if Donald Trump is the nominee and gets into another close election here in Georgia, if he doesn't win, I think we're looking at a repeat of what we've already seen. I agree with Patricia on this being a warning flag uh, for Georgians and for election workers and just for, for our sanity going into November because when we asked, when the AJC pollsters asked specifically about whether there was whether voters thought there was widespread voting fraud in 2020, voters were split. 46% said there was, 48% says there wasn't, it's within the margin of error. So basically, voters were split on that very important questions. And uh, nearly 30% of Republicans said flat out they distrust the state's election system. So yeah. we're, we're, we, we might be headed towards another nightmarish round of, of, of widespread and false accusations of voting fraud in Georgia. P- Patricia? Yeah. And the reason this is important is is not just to get a mood of the electorate, which is very important, but it's because Republican lawmakers are very responsive. Well, all, all lawmakers are, but the Republicans are in charge. Uh, they are very responsive to the anxieties of their constituents. And so the entire reason that SB 202 was passed to have the overhaul of the state's existing election laws was because there was so much anxiety and angst among Republican voters after the 2020 elections. They would come to their lawmakers absolutely blowing up their phones, blasting them on text. You've got to do something about the election. You've got to do something about the election machines. It's not safe. It's not trustworthy. So we passed this entire set of new laws to overhaul the way we're voting, and it still has not made a difference and we can assume they will continue to make changes to those voting machines and how we're voting if their voters still are not confident because confidence in elections is the secret sauce of us of successful elections people have to believe the results or else it's not going to feel like a democracy. That's so true. I mean, I think about the uh, Patricia the entrance polls that we saw in Iowa where by a large margin, Republicans who turned out to caucus said that Joe Biden was not the legitimate president of the United States, that he, in fact, had lost the election. A total erosion of the faith in the fairness of elections. Yeah. And, you know, it again, it comes down to leadership here. It comes down to every rally that Trump supporters go to. He says the election was stolen. Um, His surrogates, including Marjorie Taylor Greene, say the election was stolen. It's not legitimate. Um, Donald Trump is really the president. And I think so much. What if Al Gore had not conceded the Mm -hmm. 2020 election? Um, That was a Republican. It was a conservative majority. Um, It was a on the Supreme Court. There was a Republican secretary of state in Florida. What if Al Gore had said, I I did win and I don't believe this. And I want my supporters, I want Democrats to stand up and fight for me. Um, That would have been a really different turn in history. But Al Gore's leadership in that moment, Democrats said, oh, well, I guess we'll try better, you know, try try better the next time. Democrats weren't really 100% confident in how that went down. But Al Gore's leadership in saying it's important to move forward is why the country moved forward. It was a breathtaking moment, literally in American history, when Al Gore said, I accept the decision that the United States Supreme Court has made that Florida cannot continue the recount that might have shown that Gore, in fact, won Florida, which would would have made him president. You're exactly right. Another quick what if. Yeah. What if on Monday the networks had called it for Ron DeSantis Mm -hmm. early on 
what would you hear from Donald Trump immediately? That it was that it was fraud, that the network, that all that stuff that we heard, frankly, we heard in 2016 when he lost the Iowa caucuses to Ted Cruz. He said it, we needed a do-over, that, those election, that the election was rigged. So we're definitely seeing a... Um, a, uh, a, a, a certain one-sided look at the elections. But, you know, Patricia, I'm glad Greg mentioned that because you tweeted out on Monday night as you were at your caucus location uh, that you were really surprised that even before caucus goers had had a chance to start casting their ballots, uh, the Associated Press and other news organizations had already called the caucus for Donald Trump, named him the victor, People hadn't even voted. Bill, people had just sat down. They were getting instructions about how the night was going to go. And I mean, these people had driven across ice-covered roads in the pitch black, moonless night of 10 degrees below zero to get there. Um, sit down. The party chair is saying, okay, here's how it's going to work. We're going to hear for some people. And uh, then we're going to hear those speeches and representatives. Um, we hear a few of those speeches and they're about to tell people how to cast their ballots. And NBC News pops up multiple news organizations say Donald Trump has won the caucus. And not a lot of people were on their phones. I was on my phone. I'm like, well, why would anybody keep voting? And we did hear Ron DeSantis's campaign manager mm -hmm. say this is election interference. And had it been the other way around, I think Donald Trump would have lost his mind <laughs> if, if somebody was declared the winner and people literally had just sat down to vote. It did, to me, it felt very unfair to those voters in that room. Um, there is, I don't know what, where's the fire that you have to declare this before anybody has even voted. I, you need to let them vote, you know, and then you can say it as fast as you want to after that. But that that's my own opinion. Um, but it, it it is something that I think Iowa uh, voters and Iowa political parties are going to revisit. This is the first really uh, contested caucus since um, Twitter has been around. And yeah. if you get that notice on your phone, um, and you haven't voted yet, why are you going to stay in vote? So, okay, let's, one more question about that, Greg, or observation about that. I, I believe I'm right that the coalition of news organizations who, moving forward, uh, uh, come together to look at exit polls and, um, and early returns to make decisions about uh, uh, who the winner is of a given primary, New Hampshire, for example. I believe that since an uproar years ago about California and West Coast voters not even having started to vote when networks were proclaiming a presidential winner, I believe they've all agreed now until the polls close, they will not in these primary states uh, project winners. Am I right about that? Yeah, but th th that's the important distinction. Was You know, you see calls at 7.01 p.m. in in primary states doing election nights because the polls have closed and everyone has had their chance to cast their ballot. But this is why Iowa was so different. The polls basically had opened at 7 p.m., yeah, right? Exactly. And, and, and that's the problem here. No one had gotten a chance to vote. And there has to be a better way to do this. The call was act, was obviously right. Trump won away uh, hands down, ran away with it, won easily. But it, it did seem like a disservice to the people, as Patricia said, who braved the sub-zero temperatures to go cast their ballots, to, to, to go participate in caucuses. And yet before they had even 
done any of that. The race was called. Okay, we yeah, do. And, have, and Bill, it wasn't based on early. It wasn't based on early returns or early votes. It was no. based on entrance yes. polls. Entrance polls. Yes, in it Iowa. Before a single person had right. voted, I think you know once they've they've started counting in a lot of cases um, in states and primaries. But this was based before anybody voted, right. and I think that was people's real complaint in in eight areas, not even across the state. I think people should read your column on the fact that Iowa was already that seemed to be a foregone conclusion that Trump would win. But as you point out, uh, the, uh, the the entrance polls and the network's decision to call it really seem to make it uh, that. We've got to get to a break. Um, Jerrica Richardson is scheduled to be with us to talk about the fact that she's decided to run for the 6th District and will face Lucy McBath. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, an air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Bill Nygut. Twice daily, delivered straight to your email, you can receive the AJC's Politically Georgia newsletter. Stay on top of all the important news, scoops, and exclusives from the AJC politics team. Just go to AJC.com slash newsletters to sign up today. That's AJC.com slash newsletters. Patricia Murphy, Greg Bluestein join me, and so does Jerrica Richardson, who comes in uh, live in the studio now as an announced candidate for the 6th District Congressional seat. Greg, that seems to be a change from what Jerrica Richardson talked about the last time we had her on. Commissioner, we're going to put you right on the hot seat right here. Uh, welcome to the show. Last time you were on the show, uh, a couple weeks ago, you indicated you wouldn't run against an incumbent. Let's play that audio from a few weeks ago. I have the utmost respect, uh, especially for uh, Congressman David Scott and Congresswoman uh, Lucy McBath. They have been wonderful partners to work with, even as a commissioner. Uh, we've been able to make sure that things get through and funding gets applied for as as needed. But um, as far as the, the maps are concerned, that is the calculus that we're looking at. It is never my intent to displace a sitting incumbent um, that's a part of the Democratic Party. Uh, that is that is just not something that I jumped into this race for. Okay, Commissioner, we're back to the present. Yes. Said it's never your intent to displace a sitting incumbent. A couple of days ago, you announced you were indeed running for the newly opened 6th District, newly reformed, conf- reconfigurated 6th District seat, which Lucy McBath announced a few weeks ago she would also compete for. So what changed? Yeah, so for me, nothing really changed. It was, again, it's never my intent. That was not why I decided to jump into this race uh, back in September. And so once the facts of the case changed and there were um there were some obviously some some new announcements that came along with that i reflected to say okay well what am i looking at what is the scenario here and again it's not about me it's not about my career or or my position or, or what have you i got into this race for my community and so the first people that i went to were was were members of my community i called and i said how do you feel what do you think? And what do you want to see? And the answer that I got was heartwarming. It was of support, and they understand what kind of leadership I've brought to the table. Um, and looking at this new 6th District, it's, it's, it's incredibly inspiring because there's so much opportunity. The way that it's designed, it has 
economically active centers and also economically depressed areas. It's a chance of a lifetime for this community to have representation be there in a way that is unique, in a way that is inclusive, involved, engaged. And that was why I jumped into the race back in September and why I'm continuing to stay in the race despite other facts that may be coming into play. Hmm. Commissioner, Lucy McBath, of course, is very well known. It's a different 6th Congressional District, but she did previously represent a different 6th hmm. Congressional District. So I think voters are going to be looking to see um, the contrast between you two. How are you different from Lucy McBath if they're making a choice between you two? How will you uh, explain that to voters? No, I appreciate that question, Patricia. And Certainly not, um, uh, there, it's not the idea of a contrast between Lucy and myself, right? If you're looking for, I'm a Democrat. She's a Democrat. We're going to fall in line when it comes to voting with Democratic colleagues in Congress. What it is that I'm trying to provide to the community is what I've stated that I'm trying to provide to my community, and that is to continue to bring a different kind of leadership one that is bringing people to the table, one that is very inclusive of the community, one that's very intentional. And for me, it's about prioritization of some of the issues. And so when we're looking at um, the things that people are impacted by on a day-to-day basis, we have real economic opportunity and people are feeling hurt right now. There are, I think the term floated, micro-recessions, right? People are going through individualized recessions. It may not be across the board because our economic indicators are incredibly strong, but individually people are experiencing some real hardship. And we have a lot of different trends that are affecting us. We know that there's housing crisis, there's an eviction crisis happening. We know that there, there are issues with access to health care. We know that there are mobility opportunities that are ahead of us. We know that there are environmental challenges. The list goes on and on. Of the, the list is exhaustive of how many complex changes we have ahead of us. And so what I'm trying to do is really present that bold type of leadership to say, hey, let's confront these difficult issues head on. Let's bring all kinds of people to the table. And those that have been under my representation as a commissioner, they know what that means. And so that is what was expressed to me when I reached out to them. And they want to see that exact kind of relationship transpire from a federal perspective. We're here with Cobb Commissioner Jerrica Richardson, who is running for Congress in the newly created 6th District. Uh, let's talk about another issue that will be big in the 6th District. We know that incumbent well, Congresswoman Lucy McBath, I guess she's incumbent in 7th District, mm-hmm. but she, who's also running, has made gun control a huge part of her of her legislative agenda. Uh, where do you stand on that issue? What do you think Congress should do to prevent gun violence and mass shootings? Uh, no, it's an incredible question, and unfortunately, I mean, her story is incredibly tragic. I would, it's, and it's, it's moving in the sense that she's been able to turn that into a, a, a story of passion, but also a platform for progress, and, um, and I respect that, and unfortunately, we, we now have so many families that also share in that same feeling and, and are looking for some type of solution on the other end. And the reality is, and and those that know me very well, I tend to be very pedantic and long-winded, so apologies up front, but it's, there is no single solution to that issue. It is complex. It's kind of all the above. I know there's a current bill moving through Congress that uh, Cory Booker has put um, up for us to look at that's looking at closing some of the loopholes around licensing. 
I think the nation, we've seen the polls, the nation is interested in common sense gun laws, especially ones where it, it truly, it seems like common sense. Well, why did that person, why were they able to, to, to quickly gain access uh, to that particular device and, and cause havoc? And, um, and I know that even officers uh, that serve our, our, our neighborhoods and try to protect our families, they're also concerned <laughs> about um, how, how, easy, how easy it is to get access and how difficult it is uh, when something, when a, when a uh, threat has been presented. Mm -hmm. And it's an issue that's complex because none of the laws that we see on the books are going to get us there. There, we know that there are also mental health considerations we have to, to talk about. We know that um, there are, uh, there's certainly a lot of studies that have been done to show that there's a trifecta way of approaching curbing gun violence. Um, but a lot of this is, it's a community effort. It's not just legislation. It's all of the above. And so that, that is an approach that you're not really going to see daylight between that um, is, on that issue. What it is that I am bringing to the table are things like the Georgia backbone, things like how we can make sure we're expanding access to health care and looking at creative ways of, of making sure patients while they're in care get direct advocacy while they're in care so that we can see some of these disparities start to decrease. Uh, those are all things that we can do and, and big major projects and investments that can come into the state, things that I can deliver in two years. That is what I'm focused on. Commissioner, um, you said that you, that you have uh, want, want to talk about a lot of the issues that you believe people of the new 6th District are concerned about, um, that, that a lot of issues have not been addressed. Are, are you suggesting, I mean, we know that Lucy McBath clearly has gained a national following for her fight against gun violence, given the tragic death of her son. Yes. But are you saying that she has failed to deliver on other issues? She doesn't communicate effectively with the constituents she has now in terms of the other issues that should matter to the community, do matter to the community? That's kind of, I'm hearing that there's that's one of your rationales for running against her. I don't see this as an indictment against anyone who's sitting. I mean, she's never served this district, just to be frank. This is a new constituency for, for the congresswoman. Um, but I think holistically, people are tired of politics. And how that, that, that approach is really what I'm looking at tackling. And uh, this new district is a significant portion of the district I represent today falls squarely within this new district. And so being able to have priorities towards um, I'm currently in the middle of a priorities tour, and that's something I'd be doing as a congresswoman, bringing people to the table, saying, what is important to you and what policies do you want me to prioritize from large organizations to small organizations to the HOAs in different neighborhoods? Those conversations take place every year for me. My calendar is open to the public. We have community huddles every two weeks. We uh, gather and we talk about a lot of different issues especially with all of the craziness going on. But has Macbeth failed to do that? Is she not in touch with the community the way you believe you are? I haven't seen other representatives in general um, practice some of those different, those different approaches. That's just something that I bring. That is something I bring to the table. Patricia? So um, 
Congresswoman McBath obviously has a national donor base, a national profile. She's already picking up endorsements from the Congressional Black Caucus. Um, it, it feels a little bit like a <clears throat> David and Goliath moment. Um, how will your campaign match McBath in that way? Not necessarily in dollar for dollar donors, but how do you approach running against a woman who is popular, is um, well known? <clears throat> and, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> hasn't gotten tossed out of her seat by voters, but has been redrawn by Republicans and has all of these resources at her disposal. Excellent question. It's a question for strategy. Um, and I'm sure there'll be a lot of people that uh, can come up with different ideas on, on, on ways to, to do that. But for me, the answer is always the same. It's always about the community for me. Every time I come across a challenge, every part of my life, whether it be coming here from on the heels of Hurricane Katrina from New Orleans and reacclimating here or the relationships I've developed at Georgia Tech um, or even in my trajectory navigating the career landscape and, and all of the changes that have happened um, in the space of employment to being forced out of my seat as a sitting commissioner. You know who's always there? My community. I believe in my community. And they've shown that they believe in me and I wanna, I wanna take that and, and tell the, tell the world, world our story. Greg? Commissioner Richardson, if you're elected, on day one you'll be facing really tough decisions in Congress mm -hmm. about not just domestic policy, but really uh, complicated foreign policy issues in, in a newly unpredictable and violent landscape. Uh, not only is the Russia's invasion with Ukraine, but also, of course, the escalating the war between Hamas and Israel. So I want to ask you where you stand on those two issues. Should U.S. continue to fund and increase funding for Ukraine uh, to help defend Ukraine against Russia? And secondly, should U.S. continue to back Israel or should U.S. put more conditions on its financial support to military aid for Israel? No, I appreciate that question as well. And, and um, these issues are very complex. And any time they're discussed, there are people that are heavily impacted uh, by it, by it as well. And I've certainly been distressed by some of the things that I've seen. Um, I've also been distressed by things happening in our communities here on our own soil. And it's emotional and it's personal. So I'll reiterate on the voting side when it comes to the vote and the caucus of course i'm going to support where we have our allies and where we have our strategic placements from a national security perspective comma and <laughs> it's important that we are pushing on these that we are truly negotiating and defining what the definition of done is and being honest with the american people about what is um what it is that we're looking to achieve and what issues we're looking to resolve and why we're in the midst of a particular issue. And so when it comes to um, both of these scenarios, funding would be a yes vote, but there would be a lot of other conversations where I think there are some strategic diplomatic opportunities that have not yet been fully embraced. Commissioner, if I may, sure. um, let me make sure we get more specific about this. I think I'm hearing you say that yes, you would vote to uh, uh, give Israel 
the new funding that uh, they that President Biden says they require to prosecute the war against Hamas. But I'm also, I think, hearing you say that you have some concerns about how far Israel is going in that war, and you believe that um, that that the administration, that the U.S. government, ought to give some uh, conditions to Israel if they're going to get the money that I, you will vote for them to get. Is, is that right? You, it, you to, didn't, you didn't certain, use those words. The country certain, Israel didn't come up in your yes, answer. Yes, I would be supporting <laughs> money funding for Israel in, in their effort, right? That being said, it's very, very important that, we're a, that we aim for a two-state solution, and I'm okay. not seeing that be our primary Th- thank goal. you i appreciate your filling in uh, those yes. blanks and 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 i've certainly provided some extra context about what i think it means to see peace in the area and that includes things like ending the blockade expanding humanitarian access mm-hmm. um r- not having those settlement policies in place and uh and i, I would stand to say I, i'm not alone in that there mm-hmm. are many that reside in israel i've been there myself but many that reside in israel who have had concerns with um, the prime minister's leadership over the mm-hmm. last several years. Mm-hmm. And we've seen that um, be vocalized in many different ways. And so I think it's if we're not focused on getting to that two-state solution with those pieces in place, then it is directionless. Patricia, we <laughs> basically have time for another question from you. Okay. Um, uh, Commissioner, we've heard from uh, Democrats who are um, – not super excited about an inter-party uh, primary between uh, two people who they think are very talented. What is your message to those Democrats? They really would love it if Lucy McBath could just not have a primary and uh, are losing a little bit of sleep over it. But what is your, your message to those people um, whose support you would eventually need um, if you, uh, and you know, once this primary uh, gets underway and finished? Yeah, um, I feel the same way too. I wish that there wasn't a primary and <laughs> we're in a primary uh, <laughs> between two wonderful individuals. I, I mean, I kind of speaking of myself there, so <laughs> <That's> <laughs> taking a leap there, That's but right. um, you know, got to have confidence in these places. But I think um, that's the scenario we're in. That's That's the scenario we're in. And the sixth district does, at the end of the day, I think it will strengthen our in- inclusion of different audiences in the race. Um, I think it's going to bring a lot of issues to the to the top of the of, of, of the conversation that may not necessarily um, that may not necessarily have gotten there if there wasn't have if there wasn't a competitive primary. Um, I'm in it though because of my community, and I and and the and the decision was to stay. It wasn't. I'm not. I'm I'm still staying the course on where I was. I did not make any changes. Um, to create this scenario. Last question from you, Greg. Commissioner, yeah, we got to take a break soon, but I do want to ask you about the latest Atlanta Journal-Constitution poll that showed President Biden with an eight-point deficit to former President Donald Trump in a potential head-to-head matchup. It showed a significant number of Democrats, including about 20% of African-American Democrats, who say that they want a, a different alternative other than Joe Biden. Does that worry you going into not just your May primary, but your November election for Democrats, that there's a significant, it looks like, enthusiasm gap? Uh, that enthusiasm gap is certainly not news. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and to the point of what I was sharing earlier, people are feeling a lot differently than what the 
indicators may be showing us about our country. And I think a lot of it is, is restoring, rebuilding that trust. And there is no shortcut to that. It is only through relationships. It's not done through TV ads. It's not done through mailers. It's not done through national, you know, sentiments. It's done in people's homes. It's done one door at a time, one person at a time, real conversations and bringing people in. Jerrica Richardson, um, thank you for joining us. We're out of time for our conversation. Um, and thank you for taking on the tough questions uh, today from Patricia and Greg and me. We look forward to watching how your race against Lucy McBath unfolds in the months ahead. But again, thank you so much for being with us. Well, much appreciated. Thank you. This is Politically Georgia from the AJC. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has a special offer for Politically Georgia podcast listeners. If you subscribe today, you can get three months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. That's all our sports coverage, politics, breaking news, investigations, food and dining, and so much more on AJC.com. Plus, you'll have access to our e-paper and our assortment of newsletters. So join our community by going to AJC.com slash start. That's AJC.com slash start. Patricia, you're heading back up to uh, cover yet another 2024 election, the New Hampshire primaries. I just was looking at um, the 538 uh, compilation of polls about New ha- of the New Hampshire Republican contest. Of course, President Biden is not in a Democratic primary there because he took a pass on New Hampshire. We can talk about that at some other point. But right now, most of the polls show Trump with a fairly significant lead over Nikki Haley and certainly far uh, ahead of Ron DeSantis. I'm seeing 14-point leads. I'm seeing three-point leads as, as a really kind of outliers. Is this, in fact, looking like Trump's election to lose? And what were you going to be looking for when you get up there? Well, it does feel like Trump's election to lose at this point. He has a lot of momentum coming out of Iowa, but Iowa and New Hampshire don't always agree with each other. So we'll have to see. There's also a state election law twist in New Hampshire that they are open primaries, just like here in Georgia, but there's also same day registration. So a person could register and go vote in the GOP primary that day. It doesn't require pre-planning or a commitment to be a Republican. You just go vote. And that's what makes New Hampshire a bit of a wild card. Um, but I will say the last time I covered Trump in New Hampshire, even though the state has a reputation as being more moderate, especially because John McCain won coming out of there, I mean, <laughs> Donald Trump packed those huge like grain halls full. He had huge crowds <clears throat> and ended up uh, winning very handily. <clears throat> so I do think that is, it feels like Trump country once you get away from the Boston area, but we'll have to see exactly what comes out. I do think Nikki Haley needs to perform well there 
to uh, boost herself going into her own home state of South Carolina. Bill and Patricia, Donald Trump's goal right now is to wrap this thing up before Georgia. Mm-hmm. He wants to he wants to solidify his whole. He might not have enough delegates by Georgia March twelfth, but he wants to pretty much end the race um, before before March twelfth in Georgia's primary mm-hmm. Super Tuesdays the week before that. And so you know, again, he has this. There's this double battle going on. There's the Trump versus Trump, Trump versus expectations, and then to see if Nikki Haley can perform strongly enough to emerge at least in the in the narrative as his his main alternative. Now the problem of course for Nikki Haley is that DeSantis has never really pulled that well in New Hampshire and is focusing. He's he's gonna be in New Hampshire, but he's also back in her home state of South Carolina. He had an event there earlier this week. Um and and you know Iowa's electorate really the Republican electorate really mirrors South Carolina in a, in a major way. There's there's less of those moderate, mainstream, middle-of-the-road Republicans as do, you'll see in New Hampshire, and certainly you won't see as many um, Democrats crossing over <laughs> and voting in the New Hampshire primary uh, as you will, I mean, in, in, in South Carolina as you will in, in New Hampshire as well. So it's it's a dual challenge for Nikki Haley, and if she's down by double digits, as some of these polls indicate. Others show her within striking distance of Donald Trump or even head-to-head with Donald Trump. Um, but there's that expectations game. And will can Nikki Haley, even with a victory, even with a surprise victory, can she do better in her home state of South Carolina? Or if she struggles in her home state, uh, what path does she have forward? I do want to very quickly say my daughter's alma mater, Emerson College, which does pretty significant polling, has Trump ahead by 16 uh, in New Hampshire. But beyond that, uh, Patricia, let's say Nikki Haley does well in New Hampshire. She comes, if not beating him, which would be extraordinary, she comes within a couple points and travels to South Carolina with some momentum. The polls in South Carolina, and again, we see what happens, um, show Trump with a significant lead over her in her own state. So the path forward for her, no matter how she performs in New Hampshire, is still under a cloud. Yes. And Donald Trump has a huge built-in advantage that was very obvious in Iowa. He's been running for president nonstop for the last eight years. Um, That means that he has addresses, phone numbers, how to text people, knows their voting patterns. They have a trove of data on who has already voted for him, who has been to his rallies. And they're very organized behind the scenes. You know, as wild as he is on the stump, he has a very disciplined campaign organization this time around who is maximizing all of the advantages of an incumbent, even though he's not technically the incumbent. So it feels lopsided in more than one way. And that's what Nikki Haley is going up against. Most especially, I still wonder, is what is the GOP buying what she's selling? That's it doesn't feel like it right now, but maybe that'll change in New Hampshire. <laughs> Greg, there's a sense I get, and I felt this in watching the Iowa caucuses and the way in which Trump turned out his people, not only the organization, but we know that in sports, there is a phenomenon of fair weather fans. Mm-hmm. You may not follow the Atlanta Braves throughout the season, but if they're in the playoffs, if they're going to go to the World Series, suddenly this surge of enthusiasm brings everyone behind them. And I can't help but feel that emotionally there's that sort of thing, that phenomenon developing for Donald Trump um, that we may see in state after 
a state. They all want to be, all these Republicans want to be on board with the winner. With the winner. Yeah, and that's the sense of political momentum, which yeah. is hard to capture. It's it's how you can say that you're a second place finisher like Bill Clinton way back when and you're the comeback Come kid, back in. right? All that. Um, you know, it's still super early. It's still very early. It's, it's hard to write off um, even Nikki Haley or, or Ron DeSantis at this point. Um, but, you know, again, Donald Trump is going to look look to lock this up by March, by after the Super Tuesday, and he wants to humiliate Nikki Haley in her home state. He wants that to be sort of the the final uh, nail in her campaign's coffin. All right, um, I interviewed uh, Bill Clinton the night that he came in second in 1992 in the Democratic in the Democratic primary up there, and James Carville said to me, uh, "You're about to interview the comeback kid." Well, <laughs> he came to Georgia the next day. And it was Georgia that put him back on track by giving him a victory here, uh, the first time a Democrat had won the state in a very, very long time. All right. We're out of time, certainly out of time for my looking back into the past. But Patricia Murphy and Greg Bluestein, um, we're certainly excited that you're going to be uh, in New Hampshire. But we have a show again to do tomorrow where we're going to talk to a man who has just left the Republican race. Patricia, you've uh, got... Asa Hutchinson, uh, ready to talk to us on Politically Georgia and to talk to you for a column. So that's all the time we have for today's podcast. You can now hear Politically Georgia live weekday mornings at 10 on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta. Or follow Politically Georgia on your favorite podcast app and hear new episodes every afternoon. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again tomorrow for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop.